When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tell me about nobody for president. Ah, uh, our fearless leader. The clicking teeth. Ah, yes. I have several of them probably up there. Wavy indicates to the toy-filled shelves of his art installation bedroom. <laughs> and now nobody will speak and the teeth that go click, 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 click. They're an excellent segue after the pig. Yeah, that was... Nobody for president. Come on, let me hear you. Nobody, because if nobody wins, nobody loses, and nobody keeps all campaign promises. I firmly believe that nobody should have that much power. Nobody's incarnation were the teeth, as an excellent stand-in for nothing, which was nobody. (laughs) And that's what nobody works for nothing. Yes, the price is right. I could go on, and I usually did. Uh, the, the teeth, of course, were extraordinary, and we always had plenty of wind-up teeth. My favorite nobody story took place in 1976 in Kansas City, Kansas, the scene of the Republican National Convention. My friend John Bryant was there. He gave me a laminated press pass because he had to go somewhere (laughs) far away (laughs) so I slipped off my clown gear put on a three-piece suit which I usually reserve only for Halloween (laughs) and slipped into the world press booth and started typing up press releases for nobody (laughs) and giving them to the world press because they're right there oh thanks I'll take that So I'm spotted by this plainclothes Kansas City cop who calls the FBI and the Secret Service. They circumnavigate my clown ass, thrust me into a Lenny Bruce curtain call, and start patting me down. Feeling this bulge in my pocket. FBI agent says, Is that a gun? They whip it out as the plastic teeth start clicking in his hand. I said, quiet, our leader is speaking. He gives me back the teeth, he says, get out of here, you're too weird to arrest. And that's what I want on my tombstone. Wavy gravy. Too weird to arrest. Put it on my tombstone. Welcome to American Prankster, the rivetingly incredible, historically fascinating life story of Wavy Gravy, original beatnik hippie icon, comedy pioneer, and pioneering activist who uses humor as a weapon. Finally, we are at the humor weapon episode. My sleeping bag got arrested. They maintained it contained parts of American flag, which was actually uh, true. <laughs> There was hardly any denying of it. There was just some stars and a few bars, but it was hard to tell the bars. The stars were quite evident. 
and that sleeping bag is also known as home plate and was created by Jahanara, who worked on it endlessly forever. And it is a thing of uh, great beauty and was arrested a couple times. Then it was gotten out of jail by the Yale Law School, who were very proud of getting our uh, sleeping bag back to us from the cops. We love that sleeping bag. It's a famous sleeping bag. <laughs> Do you still have home plate? Oh, absolutely. It was even in the uh, Smithsonian or something like that. I'm producer Rainbow Valentine, and in this episode, we get into Wavy's comedic activism to make the world a truly better place. I had a disguise as a mutant dove. Not just talking about it, but actually doing it. I had a dove suit. I would go to a demonstration in my dove costume. As everybody knows, dove is the great bird of peace. I would appear in my dove suit, espousing said peace. No carrots, just straight up peace. And it was uh, quite extraordinary. I mean, most people would show up just being people like against the war or whatever. But I also did Santa Claus which was another excellent costume. I was arrested at uh, Diablo Canyon dressed as Santa Claus, and the police really liked it. They told other protesters, don't mess with us, we busted Santa Claus. (laughs) Oh yes, they couldn't put us in regular jail because there were so many of us. That's always good advice. If you're going to do a demonstration and you're going to be captured, You want to do it with a a pile of fellow protesters because then they cannot put you in real jail because there wasn't room. So they would put you in pretend jail. Where was it? I think it was in Cuesta College. It was in the gym. And they put mattresses on the floor, and you would be, be assigned a mattress when you got busted. Here's the bridge. Not just churches. Not just steeples, give me peoples, help him, people, help yourself and work out, till the stars begin to shout, thank God for something to do, basic human needs, basic human needs, yes, basic human deeds. Doing what comes naturally. Do you have any whoopee cushion stories? Oh, whoopee. I always enjoyed a a whoopee cushion, and I always had one in my possession and would put it in uh, my jacket, uh, deflate it. And then if I saw the opportunity, I would blow it up and stick it under a pillow that somebody's butt was about to land on, and it would... And I would enjoy that very much, and I would get in trouble, uh, usually by United States Marshals or people of that ilk who did not appreciate going (laughs) And they'd uh, threaten if I did it again, they would lock me up. So that was uh, deterred in that place, and then I'd go somewhere else and do it again, where they were not aware of my uh, previous infraction. But yeah, I did enjoy a good whoopee cushion. New whoopee cushion. Make every dull dinner party a whoopee cushion dinner party. Sounds just like a fart. I sent away once for a really, really big one. And I, I forget if it ever got to me or not. It was just the excitement of sending away for the darn thing. 
Yeah, it was enormous. And that's why it appealed to me, because I always like things that are larger than life. You know, I mean, a frisbee or a yo-yo or anything that's bigger than it's supposed to be or smaller than it's supposed to be. I, the, the tiny little tiddlywinks are, are really cool or, you know, giant ones with, of course, the Tibetan singing bowl, dong, dong. Oh, that was good. Tiddlywinks, an exciting game of skill. <laughs> Game of daring and fun for everyone. Could we have the next slide, please? After Wavy and the Hog Farm finished their epic psychedelic silk road trip, they returned to the U.S. And as you might recall in episode 9, Wavy's wife, Jahanara, mentioned she was pregnant in Nepal. Tell me about the birth of your son. How did that happen? Holy mackerel. Uh, I was elsewhere. Yeah, I think I was in the Samoan or something. And they were at the... Uh, Tomahawk Truck Stop in Colorado. The Tomahawk Truck Stop is in Brush, Colorado, off Interstate 76, near the Pawnee National Grassland. But fortunately, Larry Brilliant was on the bus and got to deliver Howdy in the back of the bus, parked at a Tomahawk Truck Stop. So that's what they were going to call him, Tomahawk Truck Stop. And I put a stop to that. (laughs) But it was Howdy Do Good Tomahawk Truck Stop. Yeah, we kept it. But it was not at the front. It was Howdy Do Good Tomahawk Chuck Stop Gravy Romney because we had to put that on the birth certificate also, which kind of had to write in tiny letters because there was so much of a name. <laughs> I was thrilled that Howdy stuck. And Do Good was useful also because it was suggestion subliminally to do good. And to tell us more, here's Wavy and Jaws' son, Howdy Do Good Tomahawk Truck Stop Gravy, also known as Jordan. It's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, howdy. Howdy do. He did good. <laughs> Truck Stop. Tomahawk. <laughs> Obviously don't remember being born. The wonderful Dr. Larry Brilliant pulled me out, did this thing at Tomahawk Truck Stop in, in Colorado on the, on the Ask bus. And so that was all fine and dandy, and then there was all the other stuff. It's 19 19- 1971. Nixon is the president. The first Starbucks coffee opens in Seattle. The Pentagon Papers, a government report about U.S. involvement in Vietnam, including secret escalation of the Vietnam War and deliberately lying to the public about the war, is leaked and published in the New York Times. Back from Asia, Wavy and the Hog Farm continue their left-wing theatrical protest shenanigans. Yeah, like I said, Larry delivered the baby and I was in New York. And I tried to hijack an airplane to get there for the birth, but fortunately was unsuccessful. And they took my (laughs) attempt at not only (laughs) not threatening, but actually amusing. (laughs) And so I didn't get arrested or anything. And I did get the first plane to New Mexico, which I missed the birth, but not by a heck of a lot. Wait, did you actually try and hijack an airplane? Well, I was, you know... uh, with mirth (laughs) (laughs) and humor I was never taken as you know I didn't have guns and bombs or anything like that I just tried uh, humor (laughs) what was your weapon to hijack the airplane just my dancing tongue I was certainly had things to the level of hilarity and then got on well with all the stewardesses and everything and I was also the first thing off the plane when we landed in I guess it's called Albuquerque (laughs) oh mercy what's it like to be Wavy Gravy's son 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's the question, isn't it? That's the question that I've been trying to answer in many interviews throughout my entire life. I get that question, and it's it's actually a, a hard one for me to answer. Now, as I get older, it becomes easier. But when I'm young, obviously, I, I don't have the cognizance to, to compare it to what I assume something else would be. I'm just be like, what do you mean? You guys don't all go through this, right? I'm like, I, it was very normal. I guess what I'm trying to say is my life was very normal for what I thought at the time. It's only as I've grown older and really have, have had kids of my own and raised children of my own that, that I really was able to compare it to something and look back on what I experienced and thought like, like, oh my God, that was really fucking crazy. Like all the shit that we did that I thought was just normal at the time. It, it was not, it was not that normal. It was awesome and magical and wild and whimsical. And How about the tap dancing penguins? Tell me about that. Oh my God. We advertised it. So we were impelled to pull it off. So we were sort of connected to this guy who got us in touch with the head of a sea world. And we needed to figure out what's the deal with the peng- tap dancing penguins and what they used to do to get the penguins to tap dance was to put them on a metal floor and then they would heat the floor, which would get them tap dancing, let me tell you. I was appalled, this was terrible. But we did it. (laughs) Not too much, that was enough. I'm not gonna, we don't wanna hurt the poor little things. They're adorable. But they were also adorable when they were tap dancing. Then uh, we'd turn off the heat, and then they would be fine. But not as much fun as when they were tap dancing. It was bad of us. That was bad. What were you protesting with the tap dancing penguins? I don't know. Some at Washington. Whatever they were doing, we were against. (laughs) Back to Howdy Do Good Tomahawk Truck Stop Gravy, a.k.a. Jordan. I remember being a little tiny baby, a little blob and um, being on the bus and being just kind of like in that area on the bus and wearing a very long knitted cap, kind of elf's cap, like a, like a, like an elf would wear, but like longer and knitted in multicolors in like a hippie way. Tell us about when you thought your name might be weird and you wanted to change it. Uh, <laughs> like it was really when I started school that I realized it might be weird. I have memories of being in school and on the first day when they would call attendance and they're kind of like checking off their list and they would call that name out, you know, however it got written on the paper, whether it was just howdy gravy or howdy do good or howdy do good gravy or what their truck stop was in there. Like, you know, there's versions of how long you want to make that name. You know, they would say is howdy do good gravy present and all the kids would look around like who's gonna step up and so it wasn't until i kind of saw those moments be like oh well, you know, it's like odd that they all are reacting like that it was extremely difficult for him to uh, roll with the consequences of having <laughs> that much nameage to raise his hand to so everybody said who's that kid <laughs> and he would shrink down in the desk like his parents wavy and jaw's son didn't keep his birth name Back to Howdy Do Good Tomahawk Truck Stop Gravy, a.k.a. Jordan. In doctor's appointments, too, in the waiting room, you know, they'd come up to the door and they'd call the name and they're not sure they're reading it right. And they're, Am I being pranked to read this name? Like, what is this? And then I would stand up and I'm like, oh, okay, so my name is not, <laughs> is not normal. As we grow older, most of us begin to strike out for ourselves. We begin to develop something called self-reliance. 
I picked up the name Jordan because my best friend, uh, Marcellus Jordan, who I went to school with, I just was like desperate for a name. And I was like, I, I want a name that I really like. And so I picked the name Jordan. It was his last name. And I just said, I want to be called that. And it wasn't until after I said that, that Jahamara, my mom, told me that that was one of the names that she almost named me. I was almost named Jordan. And she was shocked when I had chosen this because she never told me this. Whatever that was, they came up with, with Howdy, um, Howdy Dugan, Gravy, Tomahawk, Truck Stop, Romney, or whatever, you know, conglomeration of those words you want to throw the, you know, <laughs> shuffle out. Basically, you can change your name in the state of California at the earliest you can change your name is 13. And I spent my 13th birthday in court. And I remember the judge asking me, I have a picture of this. It's so funny because in the picture, I'm standing with the judge and me and Waver there. And we're kind of like, hey, and on the desk is the thing that says no photography. I'm like, oh, whoops. <laughs> oh, well. But I remember the judge asking me, are you changing your name to escape like gambling debt or like legal? You know, there was some like clause in her script that she had to read. And I was like, no, did you see what my name was? Like, did you read that? Like, so yeah, I just picked a simple name and I thought it's awesome that it was almost meant to be Jordan anyway. I thought that worked out nicely. It's hard work to become self-reliant, but these are the steps. Assume responsibility, be informed, know where you are going, make your own decisions. It's the early 70s and Wavy and the Hog Farm, now with small children, are living on buses, crisscrossing the country, going to protests, producing festivals, and reinterpreting the word family. Here's Jordan again. The one thing about the way we define family is, is the looser definition of family. There are people that I was raised with, you know, the children that I was raised with at the hog farm that I consider to be my brothers, even though there's no blood there. But those are the children that I was raised and grew up and, you know, learned all the things you learn with children. So that's, you know, my family. And they're my brothers. Wavy's uh, sort of their dad. Their parents are sort of my parents. It's very loosely structured. Look, there go the Millers again. Another day at Crystal Lake. We're always having good times together. Wish my family were like that. You know, so many people are asking how the Millers managed to have so much fun as a family. It was, you know, crazy stuff. Life on the buses as a kid, just being 13 kids all around the same age, 99% of them boys all on buses all together is, you know, it's crazy. And it was sometimes 13 brothers, sometimes it was 10 brothers and a sister, and sometimes it was 14 brothers. And then the numbers were constantly shifting in terms of who was staying at the house and when, and people would come and go. It was in fluctuation. That's kind of, for me, the, the definition of communal living is... Flux. What's the answer? Is it money? Things are constantly changing. Or is it magic? It's a liquid dynamic. It's something they worked out together when they woke up to the fact that they wanted their family life to be fun. Who doesn't? And here to tell us more is Jordan's hippie brother and one of my best friends, hog farmer Casper Vandermeer, son of Calico, who yelled, We are buying yogurt at the Bulgarian communist soldiers in episode 9. You can only imagine if you were starting like Mad Max the Road Warrior. The kids in our family were like, We were prepared for the apocalypse at birth and we were ready to go roaming the, the wasteland in our buses, of course. We were mini Mad Maxes. That's all we were. All we wanted to do is be Conan's and Mad Maxes and all those super 80s cultural things. Back to Jordan. But it was just living in the back of the bus. There'd be someone driving, there'd be someone on shotgun in front of the bus, and they were kind of getting the family to where we were going. And everything behind that was just wildness. It was just us relaxing on the beds that we put in the back of the bus, having fun, running around, chasing each other up and down the aisles of the bus. There would be several, usually two or three buses traveling at a time. 
and it would always be a thing about which combinations of children were on what buses in so that the adults didn't have like 13 children on a bus. There'd be four bu- kids on this bus, two kids on that bus. Was I on the mouse bus? Was I on the ass bus? Was I on the whale bus? You know, it was kind of like your home was multiple moving pieces, literally moving down the highway, traveling across the country, and you'd be split up in different combinations of people. And we would just be causing chaos in the backs of these buses. Back to Jordan's hippie brother, Casper. What do you remember about living on a bus? Every day was like a new place. It was amazing. You were free to be wherever you wanted. You only stopped in the cool spots that accepted you. So, so you were always just in like really cool, I, I guess the term would be really progressive places now, but it was just kind of normal then. You just didn't hit places all the time. And the cops would hassle you a lot. They asked you to move all the time. There'd always be a knock on the door like, hey, you can't park here. Like, all right. <laughs> then my dad, my dad would get up and light a cigarette and move the bus. But they were always in our driveway. Like, we'd always have a place that our buses would be on our driveway. And I could never imagine not having a bus on your property. It'd be ridiculous. Back to Jordan. How many buses did you guys have? Fluctuation. The ASP was always there. That's the one that I was born on. I call the ASP, often referenced as called the Nobody for President Bus. It has the Nobody logo put on the side. They always change the year depending on, you know, whatever presidential one it is. Um, there was that one. There was the mouse bus, which was the um, Sean Cassidy and Calico. Jordan's referring to Casper's parents. There was also the whale bus, which would have been Nina's parents. Nina's another hog farm kid. And, you know, that whole side of the family had a bus. Of course, it depends on if there was pranksters traveling with us at the time. Just to clarify, anytime we talk about the pranksters, we're referring to the merry pranksters. Writer Ken Kesey's commune, as discussed in episode five. Sometimes maybe there would be other buses that would tour with us for a little while, and then we would spin off. The Asp and the Mouse bus. Now, the reason I remember those ones the most are because those are the buses that were owned by people that had other children, and we were tending to be on those buses. That's how the Millers are using good home management to achieve a happier family life, to help make your home a well-managed home. Now, despite the hilarity of the Penguins and Wavy's joviality, it was actually dangerous to be an American dissident. The massacre of unarmed Kent State protesters by U.S. troops happened in May 1970, and violence against protesters was common. Regardless of 1969's positive news report of the peaceable Woodstock hippies, the government considered hippies enemies of the state. When one thinks of the problems of our day, which cry for attack and imagination and youthful energy, this seems like the greatest waste of all. The movement appears to be growing. Use of drugs appears to be spreading. There is the real danger that more and more young people may follow the call to turn on, tune in, drop out. I asked Wavy's wife, Jahanara, if she ever suspected FBI plants on their buses. We heard about it. You know, the, through the grapevine, we heard about it. There was a case where somebody who had joined us, who I felt was later, when a lot of stuff happened and suddenly he vanished, I came to think that maybe he was one of those people. I still do, because he never showed up again. The police are the only people hippies find it hard, if not impossible, to love. They suffer a persecution complex about the fuzz. Those aggressive patrols from a straight world, which hippies are convinced, is jealous of their grubby utopia. There was a time when a group of Native American people took over the Bureau of Indian Affairs building in Washington. Now, if you've got any kind of Christian blood in you, then you should get over there and march around that building over there demanding the Commissioner of Indian Affairs is released. I'll be glad to do that. Okay, so I'll I'll do that. Let me say this. 
That's news footage of the 1972 Washington, D.C. protest by Native Americans and their allies. The demonstration and takeover of the Bureau of Indian Affairs building was the culmination of a cross-country journey called the Trail of Broken Treaties, meant to bring attention to the basic human needs of Native Americans. We had a TV that we were going and able to plug into gas stations sometimes when we would stop and we could watch the news. And so we saw that all the news coverage was coming from, I guess, the police, the fuzz point of view. No part of what was happening from the Native American point of view was coming out through the news to us. So we had been given a sound system and we had carrying a bunch of cameras and tape recorders and stuff. So we decided we would show up and, and offer our media and come in and show people how to run a camera and a few things that we knew how to do so that they could put out their own news stories and were were let in to the inner inside of the bia while it was being occupied hippies sitting on the street in their bare feet they, they are parasites on the community we were not very respected because we were not really clean and you know we were wearing raggedy clothes and and uh, Lorelai said about me on film one time I realized after a while and I got to know genre that actually they were wearing their very best clothes <laughs> but our best clothes are, were all patchwork and you know our works of art hippies in their bare feet that have, have organized have decided to grow long hair as far as I'm concerned they should have been charged there and taken and incarcerated. You know, they were able to take a hold of the cameras and put stuff out. And um, this fellow, when that got really hot and heavy uh, and the police were surrounding the buses and it was getting scary, uh, he vanished. Remember, John's talking about this random guy who the hog farm welcomed on the bus. And I had a feeling that he was a plant. I don't know that for sure, but I never saw him again. This was a volatile time of demanding change, and that attitude also permeated the gender roles within the hog farm on the bus. Here's Jahanara again. Anyway, we gave them our equipment, and we got to go into the building when it was under siege and teach them how to use it. In the course of this happening, there was a scary time when the police all came in and said, we're going to siege over take over this building. We're coming with arms. We're coming with tear gas. And you have X amount of time to get your bus out of here with all of your people so that you don't end up being arrested or hurt. And nobody could drive the bus. Wait, what? Nobody could drive the bus? No, they were all inside the building. Boys were inside the building. Jaw is referring to the hog farm boys being inside the Bureau of Indian Affairs building. It didn't have a key. You know, it had buttons and things you push and something. You'd have to go out in front where there was a little thing and put a chopstick in. And, you know, I didn't know how to drive the bus. So anyway, I had a baby. In the bus is my husband in a body cast. So Wavy's at this increasingly violent protest in his body cast from one of the many spinal fusion surgeries. And he's babysitting an infant. So he was laying in the bus taking care of our baby. So I had to go in past when everything, and they were all running around with saying, it's a good day to die. Oh. Everybody was trapped where they were. All the men were in the building. They couldn't come out. We couldn't go. I said, listen, I have a disabled husband in a cast with a baby in that bus. 
I can't drive the bus. You have to let me in. You know, so I ran in and I got one of the guys, brought him out. He moved the bus. Things went on and everybody eventually settled down. But I said, this is never happening to me again. As long as I effing live, that was my husband and baby. I am going to learn to learn, drive the bus. And there was huge resentment. And Erica Miller, she also could drive the bus. Remember, Erica Miller is the winner of the post-Woodstock LSD-fueled Great Baseball Game. We learned to drive the bus, but we had a little fight about it. You know, and there was uh, one of the men was completely furious about it. You know, just really angry. And um, said that it was Wavy's back broke because I wanted to drive the bus. I was not taking my appropriate place. This is not most of the guys. This was a big deal. And one of the other guys that did drive the bus said something like, you can't fix it, you can't drive it. So Cedar and I, we got a big book with pictures of how to repair every piece of the bus. And finally I said, okay, and I repaired the damn thing. And after that, I did much of the, a lot of the bus driving. Sometimes when I was driving the bus, I would get anger from some of the men. And after a while, that went away. Too many cars chasing too little space. Where is it going to end? Many motorists say a lot of the trouble is the woman driver. And then imagine the surprise when insurance experts say that women at the wheel are much safer than men. So, obviously, the woman driver can be very good. Men just can't believe it. The hog farm lived on buses for many years, and then the hog farm kids came of school age. Yeah, we lived in buses for so long. And then Jahanara, then Bonnie Jean's pop invested in us, and we bought the Woolsey Street house. The hog farm commune's first brick-and-mortar home since the house at the literal hog farm in Sunland, California, was the Woolsey Street house in Berkeley, California. And all the little kids lived in the basement, and there were various big rooms that grown-ups lived. And I had a great big room. Back to Jordan. Never went to school on the bus. I don't ever remember going through any homeschooling on the bus. So maybe the reason why they bought the Woolsey Street house, I kind of remember Joff thinking about schooling as one of the reasons they did sort of settle down. The home they've always dreamed of, the happiest investment they have ever made, all the space they need, big floor-to-ceiling closets for each member of the family, large, comfortable bedrooms. Despite Wavy and the Hog Farm moving into a rambling house in Berkeley, California, they still traveled the country in buses, specifically for political, theatrical, activist extravaganzas. Let's hear it for nobody. Nobody for president. Come on, let me hear you. Let's talk about the nobody for president when you went on the bus tours. Oh, absolutely. We went on the road for nobody. We went to Washington, D.C. for nobody. Nobody's been with us a long time. As I explained to the uh, Native Americans, I empathize with their cause, but nobody was here first. So how long were you on the campaign trail with nobody for president in the buses? Oh, my God. Interesting, my chromosomes have amnesia, but yeah, we were out there quite a while for nobody, from sea to shining sea. I firmly believe that nobody should have that much power. And we would always have a lot of rock and roll, 
And then nobody would speak, and we'd whip out the teeth and glad our leader is speaking. And it's always wonderful to see all the TV cameras pushing each other to get better shots of these clicking teeth. Click, 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 and everybody cheer, and that'd be basically it. And we, you know, had confetti, and you know, whenever the teeth spoke, it was, we really got excited and enamored and went amok with, as I say, confetti. And it used to be somebody's job between rallies to tear up paper into small shreds to use for the next uh, campaign rally when we threw up the confetti. And then we had to pick it all up. Otherwise, the janitorial people would get upset. And it, it was fine in the indoor situations. But when we threw it up in the grass, it got in down in between the various blades and that was difficult. Otherwise, we could just grab a wisp broom and make it disappear. And it was like nobody wasn't there. In fact, I know nobody keeps all campaign promises. In fact, I even know nobody uh, is in Washington right now working for me. Did you drive the bus? Oh, yes. What was the bus? The bus had a name. The Nobody Won. Yes, that's what. It was the Nobody Won. And that was the ass. The road hog was long retired. And the ass could go from sea to shining sea. And we had a, always a, a pretty full crew, and we would go to different colleges. Aha, Wavy's college comedy tour continues. And we'd have these great rallies where we would just have like hundreds of people working on a giant painting and jump rope. How many times you could jump a rope or stand on your head or, oh yeah, stick your head under water in a bucket. And how long you could hold your breath. That was a good one. Here's Casper again. I remember being on the Nobody for President tour in 1980. Maybe I was five. It might have been seven nine. And I, I forget where we were. I know that we had left Austin, Texas. We were kind of probably traveling a little bit into in the south. And, and we set up some kind of, I don't know if it was a protest or a rally or anything like that. But everybody was wearing these styrofoam kind of campaign style hats. Kind of like, like if you'd wear them with a seersucker suit. A boater. Yeah, a boater hat. I remember specifically remember they were styrofoam and, and you, you could put like stickers and buttons on them and stuff like that. But I remember I was about to leave the bus and they're like, no, 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 you can't leave the bus. You got to stay in the bus. And I remember looking outside and it was just like a war zone. It was just all this tear gas and smoke, people running everywhere. And you could see like the police. It probably was a lot bigger in my five-year-old brain than it was now. But the thing that I specifically remember about that was all those boater hats just smashed everywhere. I forget who it was that came back on the bus with a big lump on their head and they had been hit in the head with a baton and their boater hat was broken. But when you went outside, there was styrofoam everywhere from those boater hats because they had just been broken. Let's hear it for nobody! Nobody for president! Come on, let me hear you! How many kids are on the bus? Just me. I don't know how I went, but... I did. You know what? I think my brother was in line for that, and he didn't want to go. I was the next in line, so they said, do you want to go? And I was like, hell yeah. People say, well, the nobody motorcade has just been spotted, and nobody's headed this way. And everybody goes, oh, wow, wow. <laughs> and then nobody pulls up in the back of an open convertible. <laughs> to me, when I look back at that, it shows what, like, a small amount of, like, committed, dedicated people can do. They weren't making money doing that. It, it was just a goof. It was just playing with culture and society. That's all it was. 
It was just, you know, living art constantly. I want nobody to run my life. Fucking with the status quo more than anything. Like, And the funny thing is, the more you got out there, the more you realized everybody kind of felt the same ways. That's the election that Reagan got elected the first time. And everybody fucking knew from California that he was a total scoundrel because he had been the governor of California. He was just kind of a ruthless <laughs> you're not using this so he's a ruthless prick <laughs> more, more was to go spread the gospel about what a ruthless prick reagan was ronald reagan american president from 1980 to 1988 an enemy of the counterculture with his racist war on drugs and draconian drug laws of 1986 which sent millions of nonviolent marijuana users to prison for more on reagan's war on drugs listen to my other podcast disorganized crime smuggler's daughter part of me thinks it was just an excuse to have a lot of parties to drive across the country and have a party in Southern California. And then you end up in Colorado and you're having a party in Colorado. And then you're in Austin, you have a party in Austin. Like, well, why not stop in Nashville? You know, because that's, that's a good party town. And the next thing you know, you're in Washington, D.C. Here's a news clip of Nobody's 1980 presidential campaign tour. I just love to work for nobody. Oh, I'm nobody's fool. I've been working for nobody for uh, four years now. And it's, it's really exciting. While in Texas, I've been nobody's bus boy toting around the Lone Star. Seeing that footage the other night blew my mind, like seeing Mo. I'm also nobody's bookkeeper. His name was Mo the Husband, because uh, he was just such a sweet, sweet man. I think he had run away from home because his family didn't accept him as gay. And he landed with us. Of course, Wavy and the Hog Farm are attracting LBGTQ orphans. Remember, it's 1980, a terrible time to be gay in America, let alone the rest of the world. I'm also nobody's number one flunky, and sometimes nobody's nut grinder when the mechanics can't uh, release their frustrations. I go out and pound on the instruments for them. He was always so kind and gentle. Everybody was. It was just fun. Wavy and the Hog Farm ran nobody for president throughout the 1970s and 80s. Here's hog farmer Susie Barsodi on Nobody's 1984 bus campaign. The Nobody for President tour was an endurance test for the sake of art. It's a perfect wavy gravy idea about just blowing open the doors of what you usually think of as reality and make considering it a different possibility. It was 30 states in 33 days. We um, hopped into the Nobody for President bus. So we had the bus and there were two vans, 17 people all together, including two two-year-olds, one of the mine, for God's sakes. What was I thinking? And we headed out across America. Um, and the, a typical day would be arrive in the town. It was usually a college town. We would try to go to some place that had a college attached to it because we'd do a day show at the college, do a little mini rally or show the hog farm movie. We would go to the rally to do a big rally in town at whatever the town square was. So that included Wavy doing his thing, really working the crowd up with let nobody run your life, U.S. out of North America, things like that. We sold t-shirts and sweatshirts. That was my job. Shilling for Wavy, shilling for nobody. And then in the evening, we would do a, a bar gig. <laughs> and that's where we would raise more money because we were just raising money as we went for gas. It was very shoestring. A definitely a an art project. It's an idea that, you know, people can rule themselves and they should. <laughs> Anywho, like one of the big ones uh, I was remembering today was in Denver, there was a group that was running everybody for president. And so we went to have a, a debate and everybody was represented by, I think just one person. And nobody of course was represented by Wavy and the teeth, quiet, our leader is speaking. 
it was a free for all, but basically there's no way that everybody can win because nobody always has the last word. Everybody wants to lower your taxes, but nobody will. Nobody was triumphant. I firmly believe that nobody should have that much power. And it was a full day of work. All of those things I was describing before, the setting ups and the sellings of the t-shirts and then the packing it back up. And then someone had to like do the shopping and make dinner. One night we were God, it was somewhere, but I think we were on the East Coast. We were pulling an all-nighter in the bus or driving all night. And uh, we got a flat tire at around one o'clock in the morning and people got out and fixed the tire and then we got back on and all went back to sleep and BMT started the bus again. We drove for another hour or two and got another flat tire. And this is like three in the morning. And so at this point, we're all <laughs> just shaking our heads. And I remember Wavy saying, well, we have a rule on the buses. And if there's more, if there's three flat tires, you have to have a party. And an hour later, we had our third. And we broke out the wine in the box. <laughs> that was our uh, our drink of choice on on pennies to the dollar. We only partied for about a half an hour and then went back to sleep. Got back on the road. Cross-country travel can be a rewarding experience for the whole family. All within your easy reach. The trip itself was freaking brutal. I mean, we were doing, you know, 16, 18-hour days of work uh, for art's sake. I mean, like I said, 30 states in 33 days. That means we were crossing a state a day, just about. Oh, and by the way, nobody had a secret service. He wore a suit. He had a little, you know, earpiece with a little thing. He would talk into his, to his sleeve all the time. It was pretty official. Was there a vice president in candidate? You know, there wasn't. That was a big hole in the campaign. <laughs> nobody bakes apple pie better than mom. You know, I mean, you can just go on and on endlessly for nobody. Back to Casper. There was no harmony. You know, you look at it now and you see people, especially in the last election cycle, and you see the last four or five years, six years of this country, you're not going to a city to make a statement that brings people together and brings culture and community and comedy and joy or fun. What you're seeing is you're going to a city now to create havoc and chaos and violence. And it was the total exact opposite of what is happening today. It was totally okay that you don't share our political beliefs or whatever, but you're not going to bum our trip out and be a, be violent or inhumane. And you see that now everywhere. But you mentioned the violence with the tear gas and the boater hats. You're, you mean violence from citizens, not from cops. Exactly. Everywhere you went, there was the, uh, the idea that the authorities would come in and do something. It wasn't that there was a group of citizens that were going to come and start some kind of violent counter-protest against you or, or march in the streets, chaining racist shit. The peaceful transfer of power, the cornerstone of American democracy, seemed a highly abstract concept today. As Trump supporters clashed with police as they tried and succeeded to storm the Congress. Right now, there's probably more need for a nobody for president tour right now than there ever has been in, in history. And wouldn't it be daring if folks started sharing instead of comparing what each other was wearing? Did you ever go to the Slammer? Uh, yeah, <laughs> many times. And what was the time that I'm thinking of, though? It was probably a, 
I think it was the whole hog farm in New Haven, I guess. I'm trying to remember why, but anyhow, they, they took us all. Oh, we, we were doing a, a nobody for president rallies around the country. I remember decorating my cell. I had chewing gum and a Life magazine picture of uh, Donald Duck. And so I used the uh, chewing gum and stick them up for the, putting up the picture of Donald Duck in my cell, I thought, which was quite creative. And I think everybody should decorate their incarceration. It just makes it much more fun. And wouldn't it be swell if people didn't sell their Mother Earth basic human needs? Did you have a lawyer that you would call when you were arrested? We were always having something to do with lawyers. Oh, there was the prankster lawyer, Brian Rohan. We always had his card, and before we were going into a scene where we might get captured, everybody would say, Believe Rohan! <laughs> and Brian liked that. It titillated him that all these lunatics were investing our energy and belief in him. <laughs> he was excellent. God, I still remember that 60 years ago. I still believe Rohan. Brian Rohan was a famed counterculture lawyer who represented not just Wavy and the Merry Pranksters, but also the Grateful Dead, Santana, and Janis Joplin. According to his obituary, Rohan worked until the last day of his life, which was in 2021, when he was 84. Raise a toast to the dope lawyers. We salute you. Did you ever encounter Nixon? <laughs> Wavy's unedited response to Nixon. Love it. He was yeah. pretty horrible. As I recall, I was delighted to see him get in trouble. How to be a beatnik? Some people think the beatnik is merely a bum with sunglasses. But he is more than that. Beatniks hang out in unemployment lines, health food stores, but most of all in coffee houses. As discussed in episode one, beatniks were America's dissidents, objecting to the 1950s TV dinner baloney fed to the masses. And once a beatnik, always a beatnik. Wavy remained a lifelong rebel, using his love of fun, improvisation, and performance for a life of activism, putting on a show, family fun, and combining the three. Here's Jordan again. Did you ever go to demonstrations with him? Yeah. Yeah, we went to demonstrations. Most of the demonstrations, the earlier ones that I remember going were nuclear energy-based demonstrations where he would, you know, be dressed up in his various characters that he would become. And I was never really on the front lines of those things. I'm wherever the buses are parked, wherever the kitchens and granola grind, are they're grinding out their food and stuff like that. I'm usually somewhere around there. So it wasn't like he was taking the child to these things with me on his shoulders and chanting in the front lines with the cops. It wasn't like that, but we were there. They were they were on the front lines and the children were cluelessly running around, you know, the circle of buses. Here's Casper on going to demonstrations as a kid. They were always really scary to me because you'd be there and it would just be tear gas, all this crazy stuff. And then your family would come back to the bus, big knots on their heads, and their clothes torn, and you'd be petrified for them. And they'd just be like, what? A, this is awesome. <laughs> I was always looking for a, a character to uh, costume myself into for arrests at demonstrations. And it was like, my God, they busted Santa Claus. And that's when uh, Jackson got arrested also. And that's when we became good friends. When you say you got 
that you were with Jackson. Do you mean Jackson Brown or Jesse Jackson? Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown is an American songwriter musician who sold over 18 million albums. Best known for the hit songs Take It Easy, co-written with the Eagles, Somebody's Baby from the 80s cult classic movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and Running on Empty. in 1948, he came up in the folk music scene of L.A. and Greenwich Village in the 60s and is a lifelong activist. Remember, we learned in episode two that folk music and protest go hand in hand. Now in his 70s, Jackson Brown is still touring. And John Trudell got busted with him, the Native American, who I became very, very good friends with also. John Trudell is a Native American poet. Here's John Trudell. Too many people standing their ground. Standing the wrong ground. Predator's face. He possessed a race. John Trudell was a Native American writer, poet, musician, actor, and activist, best known as the spokesperson for the Indians of all tribes takeover of Alcatraz in 1979, when the San Francisco island, infamous as a prison that closed in 1973, was occupied for over 19 months by Native Americans demanding that out-of-use federal lands be returned to the tribes who previously populated them. Now, during his life, John Trudell collaborated as an artist and activist with Jackson Brown, Willie Nelson, and was a frequent performer at the Save a Benefits, Wavy's nonprofit baby. John Trudell died of cancer in 2015. I was busted with the great Indian poet John Trudell, who was a good friend of Jackson Brown. So Jackson was also in, and that's when I got the head of the cops to smuggle in a guitar for our Tornado of Talent show. Yes, yes, you, you too can be in the tornado of talent. The tornado of talent has been part of Wavy's repertoire since the committee days with John Brent. And it's a talent show. Talent show, a talent show. It's a talent show. Oh, it's a talent show. The tornado, as we call it, has been a constant in my life at Camp Winter Rainbow. It's so fun to know its tentacles of talent stretch way beyond camp. When Jackson got sucked up, the guards started smuggling in their wives for our show. Their wives would hide out on the periphery to catch the tornado of talent. And it jollified the uh, police, which unjollified, they could be mean and nasty. But because they were jollified, they were nice and nifty and helped us get all kinds of treats. And they just made prison life. It was almost a resort. So Wavy's been arrested with Jackson Brown and John Trudell, and they start putting on Tornado of Talents in jail. We would uh, uh, poetry slams was part of the tornado of talent, which fulfilled our evenings. Was Al Dente the host? I was for a while, yeah. Remember, Al Dente is one of Wavy's alter egos stolen from pasta packaging, who was part of the Goon King Brothers Dimensional Cremo psychedelic peddler duo of Wavy and John Brent, as discussed in episode four. After the 1960s Al Dente the LSD vendor became Al Dente the MC of the Tornado of Talent at camp and everywhere else. And then they had to kick me out. They were they felt terrible about it. I didn't want to leave and they didn't want me to go, but they had to let me go. And so it was really sad. But they allowed me to set up a scene across the street with the white courtesy telephone. 
The white courtesy telephones are free courtesy landline phones that used to be in every airport, train stations, hotel lobbies, and other places of public congregation, usually related to travel. Still in existence in a few places, including the Cleveland airport, according to the internet, the white courtesy telephones were usually used for travelers seeking information, like where to find a taxi, motel, or the person picking you up, just like from Wavy's leisure hub across the street from the jail. Where people, when they got out of the slammer, could contact their family and have them come and fetch them. And so they would wait in our scene in opulence and lie down on a hammock and, and yes, a back massage and ingest ice-cold Budweiser's or lemonade or whatever your choice was. We tried to fulfill everybody's desire once you got out of the slammer. And it was really sweet. But you know who the idea came from the police that suggested me to do it. Okay, let's take a moment. Wavy is now providing entertainment and luxurious basic human needs to formerly incarcerated people across the street from prison. <laughs> Some people say, what would Jesus do? Um, I like to ask myself, what would Wavy do? Because Wavy is the man, not the corporate man, but he's the man. You know what I mean. And it was really cool because, first of all, I panhandled my portable throat, which is a loud hailer, and it could broadcast several miles by squeezing the thing and talking into it. And so we used that in the prison yard where their wives were across the street and they would jump on the loud hailer and communicate with their family. It was wonderful, and I still have in my puja room the remains of the loud hailer, which got beautifully collaged and is still a, an item of awesome importance, yes. So Wavy's dedication to justice, integrity, and goodness also permeated the hog farm. Here's Wavy's hippie nephew, Casper, again. Tell me about Wavy as the doler out of justice when you were naughty. Man, Wavy was super good at it because he stayed out of it until it really needed to happen. You knew you were in trouble when Wavy started getting involved. With us kids, he was kind of like, you got to learn by your experiences if you started to become mean or unkind, things started to change rapidly for you. But it would only be like that one occasion, and it would never, he would never lord it over you or anything like that. But yeah, you knew you fucked up bad if, if Wavy was getting involved in the disciplinary structure of the hog farm. Back to Wavy's activism with prison talent shows in the post-prison white courtesy telephone leisure hub. Is this when you started making get-out-of-jail-free cards? Oh my God, how did that happen? Perhaps. Whatever it was, it was a great idea. And I printed them up. And when people would get out of jail, I would give them one. And the only way it would really work is if you laminated it. Unlaminated, it was just an interesting piece of paper. Laminated, it stood for something. The police were very impressed with lamination. So I uh, began to print them up in great numbers. And I've discovered that when I would be pulled over by the police for some infraction or other, if I didn't have a taillight or what have you, I would uh, whip out my get out of jail free card laminated and they would crack up and let me go. This is true. It made total sense to produce a, a fair number of them. The lamination department and I would issue them with great aplomb and I think you had to put your hand over your heart and say some words or other and then you would be presented your laminated get out of jail free card and this would cause police to laugh. 
Despite Wavy being labeled too weird to arrest, he was arrested many times. And luckily for us, passed on his hot tips for being arrested to his son, Jordan. It's odd for your parents to, like, train you properly to go to jail, right? This is like, like, I've been, not kidding, I've had lessons from Wavy on how to be inside of a jail. It's like weird parenting skills. So when you get arrested, I'm going to be so proud of you. Good job, you got arrested. Here's some tips. It's like, whoa. What are the tips? <laughs> what are the tips? Bring a sandwich, bring a nail file or nail clippers and try to cut the plastic handcuffs that they're going to try to put you on. They don't have enough metal handcuffs for everybody. Bring a kazoo, bring a musical instrument. You're going to want to sing songs to the cops. Bring a sandwich. They're really not going to have time to search you. Those were all the lighthearted lessons. The serious lessons were choose whether you will resist or not. You have options. You can become limp and let them drag you and that's going to make them angry and you're going to get roughed up or you can work with them and when they take you and it's your time to get arrested you walk away it was really just about um how to keep your he would t- teach us how to keep your spirits up and drunk inside the jail that you should sing songs and try to smuggle food in that they're not going to have time to search you well that those plastic handcuffs are very easy to break through if you put a little nail clipper in your in your shoe kazoos to lead some songs and that you have the opportunity to converse with cops when you're in jail that you can talk to them and let them know that they're your brother and that, that they should be on the other side of that dynamic and every now and then you get you know you get to one and you can see that they're thinking about it and that's what that's all about right then you're like then everything is worth it you're you're just reaching someone so, like the Spinal Tap amp, Wavy's life story goes to 11. In the next and final episode, Wavy tells me his hated secret childhood nickname only known by Jahanara, not even Jordan knows. So, Wavy really loves you a lot. Kicking and screaming against, but under duress, full of not wanting to do it. He is willing to give you his secret name that he hates and detests. And he gives me permission to share his secret nickname with you. And he says it'll probably be good to, good for him. He still hates and detests it. Plus, Wavy's eyeball care nonprofit, Seva. I heard a rumor that you bring googly eye spectacles to Seva board meetings. This is true. Camp Winter Rainbow, Wavy Circus Performing Arts Camp for weirdos like me, misfits like me, and big fun enthusiasts like me, and most probably you. And I remember driving into this valley that I immediately saw a circle of 17 teepees. And saving the largest mammal on Earth. Our wonderful whale, which was a bus, and it squirted water out of the roof, and, and we just drove that sucker into downtown Stockholm during rush hour. Let's hear it for nobody! Nobody for president! Come on, let me hear y'all! American Prankster is executive produced by Rainbow Valentine Studios, Eric Hober, Larry and Gerger Brilliant, God and Company, Cecily Lerner, Rainbow Valentine, and Wavy Gravy, and sponsored by Levy Informatics at levyinformatics.com. Episode 10, written, edited, produced, and scored by Thessaly Lerner. With original music by Will Collins, Hope for a Golden Summer, The Ukulele, and Gabby Lala. Mixed and mastered by Brian Slusher. Narrated by Rainbow Valentine. Associate producers are Sage Lame, Ryan Reeves, Trina Calderon, Zappo Dickinson, Jundid Sykes, Jahanara Romney, and Mark Margolis. Logo by Jordan Paisano. Special thanks to our Episode 10 guests, Jahanara Romney, Jordan Gravy, Casper Vanderme, and Susie Barsodi. Plus, appreciation to all the Do-Re-Mi budget donors, our partners at Pantheon Podcasts, and you, our listener, plus the in comparable wavy gravy for more info go to rainbowvalentine.com or wavygravy.net 
raise a glass to the downfall of evil and towards the fun. Mwahaha. Thanks for listening. I'm pretty out of breath now. And it's really hot in my recording studio. Ooh, talent show. Ooh, a talent show. It's a Ooh, talent, talent show. show. Oh, it's a talent show. Talent show. Yeah, yeah, talent. Kissing builds up your mouth. Great. Kissing builds up your mouth. Is that... That's my wavy closer. Great. <laughs> <laughs>